Chances are, when you think of William Wallace, you actually think of Mel Gibson playing William Wallace, charging down a hill in a kilt with his face painted blue. Or maybe you just think of the Braveheart's connections to Scotland and his principled stance against what he saw as the overreach of the English. If you have a keen legal mind, maybe you're interested in his trial and its influence on understandings of war crimes. Or maybe, if you're a little creepy like me, you think about his gruesome death. These are all interesting aspects of an exceptional life. But what do we actually know about William Wallace the man? Not the Mel Gibson version, or the heroic statue version, but the man himself. I'm Dr. Eleanor Yanaga, and today on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I stopped by our sister podcast, Betwixt the Sheets, to chat with my friend and yours, the wonderful Dr. Kate Lister, about what we actually know about William Wallace, and what we can truly know about anyone before they make a major mark on the world in the medieval period. It's my favorite, Eleanor Yanega. How are you doing? Do you know, I'm better every time I see your delightful face, Kate. <laughs> I'm just randomly plucking medievalish topics out of the air just so I can get you. <laughs> we can see the sweat on this one. It's just like, what, what can we get Eleanor to rant about? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like, literally this anything. One this one I'm quite looking forward to, though, William Wallace. And mm. I'll tell you for why, because I went to go and see Braveheart at the cinema when it came out as a yes. very, very young person. And I horrible histories weren't a thing, so I didn't know what had happened to William Wallace. Mm. And I didn't realise it was real history. Mm. So when mm. he got hand-drawn and quartered in the end, I was devastated. So yeah. that doesn't happen in movies. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, too, because so I'm often while and out about Braveheart, which is a technical historical term. Uh, because <laughs> the trouble is that it has this core of historical accuracy, stuff like him mm. being hung, dry, and quartered, about a five-minute walk from where I'm recording right now, in fact. Um, wow. But, like, literally, in the first couple of seconds, they get the history wrong. <laughs> like, they, like, they've got incorrect dates. And also, they've sexed him up a bit, haven't they? Well, yes. And, and you know what? Fair play. We all want a sexy guy in our movie, and that's fine. And I actually don't think that there's a problem with making movies that don't have the history correct. My issue is when people see it and then go, oh, yeah, okay, like uncritically take every single thing on board. And they were like, yeah. oh, yeah, William Wallace shagging uh, Queen Isabella. How about that? How about that? Good, <laughs> like, I'd forgotten that happened. Mm. Mm. As a historian, I do, I try very hard not to sit there and watch films and bitch about them. It's, mm. it, it's mm. a lot of the time it's low hanging fruit and it's like, it's a film. Yeah. You have to have creative license. It's a different medium. Shut up. If, if you don't like it, read a book. Mm. But I think that Braveheart might, might win the most irritating film to historians mm. award mm. because there's so much in it that is just nope, nope, mm. nope, mm. nope. That didn't happen. Yeah, like, I think that you're probably bang on. And it's, again, it's, I think it's a presentation thing because like, you know, mm. every single medieval historian, every one of us will line up to tell you all about how much we love a knight's tale. Yes. Knight's tale. Yes. Whenever that happened. And, and, you know, it's completely historically inaccurate, but it's not pretending that it isn't. Whereas mm -hmm. Braveheart is like, oh, you're about to see a very serious historical movie that is also sexy. Yes. And it's like, come on, buddy, like pick one. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, yeah. One of the things it did get right, and it's quite a central tenet to it, is there really was someone called William Wallace, which yes. I'm glad that they got that bit correct. <laughs> <laughs> the whole film there was. There was. <laughs> is, yeah. is out. 
Who was he? I'm going to assume they didn't look like Mel Gibson in a kilt. Yeah, well, one of the things that's really sad is that he probably didn't even wear a kilt. And uh-huh. there's a reason for this. And that's because, so you know, like our details of William Wallace's early life before he gets himself in trouble are what I would call sketchy at best. Ah, right. So we know that he comes from a family of like, he's like lower nobility, right? So like he's fancy, but not like... We own a string of castles, fancy. Like, he's kind of middling fancy. So definitely not a commoner, as he is in the film, then. Yeah, definitely not a commoner. And so the reason why this means that he's not wearing a kilt is that members of the nobility in Scotland kind of look like members of the nobility elsewhere. You know, if he goes into battle, he'll be wearing armor. And we know that he uh, probably has some military training of some sort. His personal seal, which we do have, has an archer on it. Wow. So it is probable that he knows something about war making, which is cool. Uh, But he really kind of goes onto the scene when it all kind of starts kicking off with the Scottish Wars of Independence. And that's when we start getting really good records about him. Because, you know, um, sometimes our records for Scotland are not the best. Mm. There are a lot of reasons for this, you know, like in the first place, uh, you know, stuff do be burning down. Yeah, we do be doing that quite a lot. Yeah, and you know, like when there's multiple wars back and forth, which there are in uh, Scotland and England a lot, we lose records. People and, aren't saving the paperwork. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, we, he kind of comes up more in a context of like when the English are big mad. That's when you get it. Um, and that kind of happens as a result of the Scottish Wars of Independence. Do we have any idea when William was born? Roughly. It's one of these things that we're like sometime around 1270 or so. Okay. So 1270-ish. Ish. Yeah. So it's like he was in his 30s when he gets killed. We know that. And this is super common. You know, like we don't always have a great handle on people's birthdays unless they are really quite highfalutin indeed. It's like in there, in there, right? Okay, so he's born sometime around there and he's definitely Scottish and he's definitely called William Wallace. We know this much. I don't actually know all that much about what the Scottish Wars of Independence were beyond just, it was the English being shit again, wasn't it? That's sort of my entire historical understanding is like, it was us being dicks. I mean, well, you're bang on, you know. (laughs) Print it, print it, and moving on. That's it. (laughs) Okay, so it's a complex one. So basically, there was a Scottish king, King Alexander, who widely was regarded as a really cool guy, uh, and everybody liked him. But he dies a real classic rich guy death in 1286. He falls off his horse. Now, the heir to the throne was supposed to be his granddaughter, Margaret, the maid of Norway. And this is super common for Scottish people because they are so far north. They've got great links with like Norway, Sweden, I you see. know. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's waiting for Margaret to come over from Norway. Now, unfortunately, when she comes over from Norway, she dies in the Orkneys in about 1290. Margaret. And so now everyone is like... Well, and they basically have a kind of like X factor search for like who's going to be who's going to be the next (laughs) king. There's 13 different contenders. And there's kind of like two major ones. There's Robert Bruce, who is not Robert the Bruce. He's not Robert the Bruce. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, I see. Right. That's his granddad. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this other guy, John Balliol. Okay, And so they're trying to figure out who to do it. And some bright spark is like, okay, we need a ref for this. So we're going to get King Edward 
the first up from England to sort of ref all of this, which is like, here's your first mistake. Never invite right. an English guy over the border. Like, you know, why, why would you do that? Why would you no, do that? Don't tell him we don't appear to have a king. Would you like to come and help us out? No. So basically he gets up there and he says, well, before I ref, you all need to agree that I'm the Lord Paramount of Scotland. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. But they all kind of do it because they're like, oh yeah, but when I'm king, then, you know, it's all going to kind of come back, right? right? And they get together in this castle at Berwick and eventually they choose John Balliol as the king. And John Balliol gets picked because he's got a super strong claim based on primogeniture, which is kind of the like what happens when first men are involved. But it's not about like proximity of blood because basically Robert Bruce, he's got closer links, but it's through the ladies. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. So it's like looking at the family tree and going, yeah. well, you, there are more men who are more closely related mm-hmm. on this, guys, even though yeah. the women, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds stupid. Yeah. And it doesn't go over well. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. And uh, Edward then proceeds to be a real dick about it and like he basically makes john come down to london and like stand before the english court as a plaintiff he basically he's just kind of like swinging things around like i'm really the ruler of scotland you know and everyone is like i don't like how john balliol is doing this like he should just been like all right you did your job sawed off I'm not going to do this, but because there's this somewhat tenuous claim to the throne, he's like, whatever you say, your majesty, and, uh, you know, uh, kind uh. of like scuttling around, right? So the Scottish don't like this, and they make a new council called the Council of Twelve. And it's kind of like a panel of guys who are like, no, sorry, we're not doing this anymore. And they go down to France, and they're like, hey, guys, uh, who, who up hating the English? Would oh, you like smart. to get together? Yeah, and and do something. And so now, obviously, Edward is livid and he comes on up to Berwick and this kicks off all the wars, right? So a couple of castles are taken. He goes up to John like there's a fashion crime here that we have a, a wardrobe malfunction. He goes up and like tears the arms of Scotland off of John Balliol's surcoat. Woo! He's like messing with his fashion. And basically he's like, I'm the king of Scotland now. To which about 1,800 or so Scottish nobles capitulate, but other people do not like that. This is Edward the Longshanks. Uh, yes, that's Edward I, yep. He sounds like a massive shit. Was he a massive shit? Because he was in the film. You know, there may as well have been like evil Vader music, whatever he turned up. Was he <laughs> really shitty? I mean, the thing is, like, all kings suck, don't they? But yeah. he did really suck. I mean, like, when your alternative nickname other... Then Longshanks is Hammer of the Scots. Yeah. It's not great. Wow. It's not great. Like, let's just put it that way. You know, I think I personally wouldn't hammer Scots. No. Unless he got the nickname before the Scottish Wars of Independence. And then he would have been like, well, mm. this is prophetic. I, be- I guess I better get up there and earn this nickname. But that's not what happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And basically everyone agrees that he's a real dick. He's rude to people at court. And it's also funny because like this whole thing about him being like, where they're like, whoa, this guy's so tall. He's like 6'2". <laughs> like, I'm not saying that's not tall, but it's not like remarkable anymore. No. Is that why he was called Longshanks? Is that what that means? It's just that he was, he, yeah. he cleared, oh, right. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was a penis joke. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Might be. I don't know. It's like, you know, he's also like the guy who um, expelled all the Jewish people from England. No. Uh, You know, which I'm not a fan of. So, yeah, he's responsible for the Jewish expulsion in 1290. He really knows how to be a hater. I will say that for him. So he's up in Scotland tearing John's T-shirt off. And then what happens? 
Okay, so then it all kicks off, right? Some people are licking boots and going with it, and other people are not. And William mm-hmm. Wallace is one of the ones who is not going with it. So he kicks things off in 1297. William Wallace kind of comes to our attention because um, he pulls a Bob Marley, which is to say he kills the high sheriff of Lanark, William de Hesselrig. Wow. And so suddenly he's on the map because everyone's like, oh, ho, we're out here killing sheriffs now. Okay. And then he hooks up then with the Lord of Douglas and they do a thing called the Raid of Scone, which is not like when I do it and you just go M&S and get like four (laughs) cheese ones and eat them all. And then everyone's like, yeah, fantastic. There are a bunch of more rebellions that break out as a result of this across Scotland. And they also go after a lot of the Scottish people who submitted, right? Scabs. Yeah, like basically it's a scab thing, Yeah, right? Okay. So basically then you have a couple of big battles, including the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which does what it says on the tin. This was a really kind of smart bit of tactics. It's a fairly narrow bridge. You can't get people to cross it more than about three at a time and the Scottish just stood there on one end and were like no you come over here and like classic medieval warfare the English were like oh well it wouldn't be sporting if we didn't the thing that always kind of makes me wonder about I think this is kind of like the English got a little cocky that doesn't sound Uh, like they were like I know I can't (laughs) believe it you know where it's like you know I would simply not cross the obvious trap bridge no. But the English were like, no, we're doing it. And so they basically, the Scots just stood there and like when the next three guys would make it across, they killed them and then they killed the next ones and then they killed the next and ones, right? Part of the bridge collapses during all of this. A bunch of people just straight up drown and it's like a marked victory. Right. Edward's treasurer in Scotland dies during it. So it's pretty significant. It's really interesting because there is a possibly apocryphal story about uh, William Wallace here. So when he kills Edward's treasurer, there is like people saying that he then took like a strip of his skin and like made a baldric for his sword out of it. Oh, that's gruesome. Yeah, it's gruesome. I don't know that we can necessarily say that that's true. To me, it seems like they're trying to play William Wallace up as a barbarian or something like that. So yeah, as a result of this, everyone is like, oh, hey, William Wallace and this other guy, Moray, these guys are cool. And we are going to call them the Guardians of the Kingdom of Scotland. And they are kind of representing John Balliol, okay? But then uh, Moray dies from wounds from the battlefield. And so then that just makes William Wallace the guardian of the Kingdom of Scotland, right? What's John Balliol doing while all this is going on? Just hanging out? What's he up to? He is certainly like around and on the scene, but it's, it's a really kind of a difficult one, right? Because he feels as though... Edward has kind of pipped him, right? So Mm. in a way, he'd kind of abdicated already at this point in time. That's what Edward wanted. Edward was like, okay, well, I took your little seal off and like, that's that for you. And there's all these rebellions going on and people are saying, we're doing this for John Balliol. And John Balliol is like basically a prisoner at this point in time. Oh, okay. He is like in the Tower of London. Sometimes he's at Dover. Sometimes the Pope has custody of him. It's basically agreed to throughout Europe that this guy is important. Like, obviously, the English are like, yo, we need to keep an eye on it. But even the Pope is like, uh, oh, lads, you know. So, mm. like, this is why you need William Wallace to be a quote-unquote protector of Scotland in yeah, terms of the cause. 
because otherwise who's running the joint other than Edward? And so there, there needs to be someone viable, uh, but they also kind of need to keep saying that Balliol is the king because then otherwise Edward is able to say who does and doesn't get to be monarch, right? And that's the right. whole point. They're like, no, he doesn't. Like, he's not the boss of me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So there's the weird bridge battle, which now I've heard you explain it, feels less like a decisive military victory and more like the English being stupid. That's a big victory. The Scots must have been properly buoyed up. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Where was Wallace based? In the film, he's kind of like, you know, living in the, the highlands and sleeping in heather bushes and stuff like that. And but... that's the thing. It's like Homeboy is like Southwest. Right. Okay. Again, like it's sexy. Like, I mean, in the in the movie, too, they're all like, oh, he's just like just a humble peasant. Yeah. And it's like, no. Like, like, he's I mean, not, though, is he? Granted, this is the thing. that It's a somewhat believable story because, hey, well, most Scottish people in the 13th and 14th century are peasants. About mm. 80% of them are going to be a peasant of some kind. We only get to just sort of like know about rich people because that's who people write about. So you can understand why it's a story that gets told. And it also sort of appeals to our understanding of like a David and Goliath battle as modern people. Mm. You know, we want him to be completely downtrodden. And I'm like, you don't need to go that far, right? Yeah. You could just be like, actually, the English can be a dick to any number of people. You know, they've got that ability. It's true. We don't need you to be poor. We will equal opportunity assholes, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I'm going to imagine that at this point, this is when King Edward really starts to think, oh, shit, shit. And he's going to mm -hmm, move stuff mm -hmm. up now to try and get Wallace. So what happens after this battle? You have another big battle. This is the Battle of Falkirk. And you are right. Edward is like, OK, well, that is it. Like, I'm paying off mercenaries. He pays all of these Welsh people to go up. And he's got something like 1,500 horses, which is a lot. That's a lot. Um, and they start hitting various areas. Like, they plunder Lothian. They hit a bunch of castles. And what they're kind of attempting to do is, like, goad Wallace into doing something. Mm. And basically, you get the Battle of Falkirk. And because they've got all these Welsh longbowmen this time, they have a slight 
tactical advantage because Walls has like a lot of spearmen. But if you've got longbowmen, they can just shoot you. And that's the trouble. So eventually the Scots lose a lot of men, but Walls gets away. And like... At this point in time, he's feeling bad about it. He resigns and he's no longer guardian of Scotland. I'm standing my notice in. I know, it's like, he's like, that's it. <laughs> I've shamed us all. It can't be me anymore. And this is when you get Robert the Bruce. So Rob turns up. Yeah, Rob turns up. He will become the king. Fantastic. And we don't really know what is going on at this point. Maybe he went down to France to ask Philip IV to like send some soldiers or whatever, you know, went out there to say, please help. We do know there is a letter that the French king sends to Rome where he's got envoys being like, you should help the Scottish out. Like, come on, what's going on? So there is some reporting from some various spies on the English side where they're saying that Wallace is in France. Okay. But anyway, by 1304, he's back. There are various skirmishes and we know that that's going on. Uh, But then he gets captured. So 1305, a snitch hands him in. Thumbs down to John de Menteith. Like, we got your snitch name. He lives in infamy. Bad guy. In the film, it was Robert the Bruce that did it, wasn't it? Which was an odd historical take. Yeah, I don't really know why they would do that. Like, are you trying to suggest that he's, like, jealous or something? Like, calm down. Before we get to what happened after he'd been caught... In the film, um, William Wallace gets to York and he Mm. sacks York and it's a whole big, oh my God, Wallace has sacked York. Did that Mm. happen? Did he get as far down south as York or was that creative license as well? I think that's creative license. Like, so, you know, we know that he's like hitting up Hapru, he's hitting up Urnside, places like that. And they do kind of like raid across the border. But I think that perhaps the farthest north that anyone in America knows exists. In <laughs> I'm, I'm allowed to say it. I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> so. well, it's got to be someone that people have heard of. It's either York or Manchester. It's one of the two. Yeah, one, it's got to be one or the other. You know, so they've, they've gone with York. So this guy snitches on him. Do we know how he gets caught? Does the guy, what was his name? Snitchy McSnitch. Yeah, John Dementi. John Dementi. Yeah, and so he is Scottish, but he is Team Edward for whatever reason. So basically, he kidnaps him essentially and hands him over to the English side um, at Robboyston, which is kind of like near Glasgow. And there's a monument to it. Wow. Now you can go see it. And at that point in time, he gets sent down to London. Uh, which is where it all goes terribly wrong. Yeah, and he's tried as a traitor. Tell me what happens. This is a really interesting legal point, right? Because William Wallace is like, I'm not a traitor. I did not swear fealty. That's a good point. So like, you know, you could go ahead and do that to like the snitch that turned me in, but I never bent the knee to you. So how could I have possibly been a traitor? Edward uh, does not take the point. Basically... They say that, oh, he committed all these atrocities. Like they said that, you know, he was killing monks and nuns and, Mm. you know, women and children. And, and, you know, hey-ho, maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. But, you know, basically the entire thing is they want to paint him as a monster. But it is interesting because essentially this gets brought up a lot in terms of legal scholarship because they're saying that he's more or less on trial for war crimes. Wow. Okay. Because like you shouldn't kill women and children. You shouldn't kill monks and nuns. You shouldn't do like non-combatant stuff. Right. Which is interesting because, you know, people 
did. Yeah, they did. A lot. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it, it's interesting because they, they, the English are out here being like very pious about it. And all. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. Edward, Hammer <laughs> of the Scots. Like, oh, who, oh he's got religion suddenly. Yeah. Like, sure. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. Um, so he eventually gets taken to the Tower of London. And then this is when uh, they do some torturing. So first he gets stripped naked and dragged through London. We think to Smithfield, this is what's kind of confusing because there are kind of two major execution places. There is Smithfield and then there is also the Tyburn, which is kind of over where Marble Arch is now. But they're sort of called the same thing. Okay. But we're assuming it'll be Smithfield because like if they took them all the way from the Tower of London over to the Tyburn, that would just take it ages. So we think it's probably Smithfield. Then he is hung, drawn and quartered. And what this involves in his case, they go particularly hard. So they start hanging him and strangle him, but don't let him die. They chop his junk off. Then they eviscerated him and put his guts onto a fire in front of him and like made him watch that and then they cut his head off it's really grim and they took his head they dip it in tarp they put it on london bridge which is kind of common for uh, people who have done mm-hmm. crimes against the king um, and then they cut his body into four parts and they send like his limbs to newcastle barrack sterling and perth to make a point they cut off his arms and legs and they sent them to the four corners of the kingdom, basically. Oh, who did they mm. send them to? Was it just like addressed to the people of Perth and it was just a leg? Or was there an actual recipient there waiting to take care of the leg? Yeah, basically, someone who is a representative of Edward will take it up there and they go out and they do the whole hear ye, hear ye thing. And they're like, check it out, we got a leg. Oh, oh that makes more sense than just a leg mm-hmm. turning up. Right. Because otherwise no one would know who it belonged to or anything. Oh, it's grim. So this is horrible and grim. And it was meant to be horrible and grim. And this is exceptional. This is a sort of torture and killing that wouldn't ordinarily happen in most of the medieval world. Mm. This is something specifically reserved for someone who is considered to be a super major threat. Like this isn't going to happen to a common person who steals a sheep, although they might be hung. This is like above and beyond. And part of the reason you have super gruesome things like this, or even, you know, why you would hang someone who steals a sheep, is because people don't get caught very often for Mm. crime in the medieval period. So when you do get caught for crime, they're like, okay, we've got to go all out. Like, we've got to be like, this is what will happen. And so... Edward has to go in really hard on William Wallace to be like, I hear y'all like rebelling. No rebelling. This is what will happen to you. Like he has to go as hard as he possibly can. Wow. Yeah. So this is the worst thing they could dream up. It's not like this is standard practice in any way, shape or form. No. Yeah. So he makes a very sticky and painful end. We'll only have to hope that he was semi-conscious throughout most of it. But can I ask Mm -hmm. you, like, it's very sad to cut his junk off because I'm going to ask you about his love life because obviously that was... Very yeah. central to the film, wasn't it? And as you went, I completely forgot mm. in the film, he shags Queen Isabella. <laughs> but do we know? Spoiler, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, but like, so Queen Isabella is two at the time. So there is kind of rumors about his love life. In particular, what we sort of know about him for this and, and the rumors about it come from a late 15th century romance that's written about him by somebody called Blind Harry or Harry the Minstrel. And this is called The Wallace. Oh. And Harry the Minstrel goes 
in hard about how sexy <laughs> Wallace is. Wow. He's given him the Mel Gibson treatment. <laughs> he says that he is a tall man with the body of a giant. He has lengthy flanks, is broad in the hips with strong arms and legs, and all of his limbs were strong and firm. He says that William Wallace is six foot seven, which... <sighs> I don't know, probably not. And that he's like gorgeous. He's got auburn hair. He's got blue eyes. He does like the full medieval description of beauty. He's like his brows and lashes um, are light and his lips are round and full. Like he goes in boudoir. Wow. This is written 200 years after the fact by a guy who says he's blind. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's normal. Right. So given that we're talking about how hot he is, right? Basically, there is also a story about what makes him rebel. And he says that he had been married to a woman called Marion Braidfoot, who was the heiress of Lamington, and that they had a daughter and that basically the English killed them. And that's what drives William to rebel. This is probably unlikely. And part of this also kind of comes from the idea that maybe the daughter survived and, and that she married into the Balliol family. And then someone from them then married into Clan Shaw. And right. Clan Shaw likes to bring this up and be like, uh, uh, we're connected to the Wallaces, right? And it's like, probably they're just making up a story, right? It's just like a way of attaching yourself to a more important family to make yourself look big. So it's probably not real. Right. And there's a couple of ways to kind of read this story, right? And one of them is to say, okay, well, maybe he did have like a wife and daughter. And I don't know, maybe he did. And maybe this is like an oral tradition that kind of gets passed down. And that is what drove him over the edge. But you could also read the idea of Marion as sort of a way of thinking about the kingdom of Scotland, like a romantic metaphor, for the country as a whole. We don't have any real evidence that Marion existed. Oh, uh, nothing in the contemporary sources at all. Uh-uh. Yeah, so... Oh. that It would be cool, but we... But on the other hand, you know, the only reason we have records of William Wallace is because everything kicked off. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. Because mm. I think that probably more would have been made of the fact that she had existed had she done so. I think like that would be a part of the legend earlier on. Yeah. You know, it would get brought up more often. Mm. Now, whom he may have been shagging other than that, probably some people. Like, you know, it yeah. was rather the style at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it absolutely was. You're the protector of Scotland, like, please. Absolutely. Bloom is flying down left, right and centre. In the film, she was called Marion as well. So that's interesting mm -hmm. that there's that kind of nod to it. Yeah, so I think that in the film, they do enough there, but it's like, she should be a fancy lady. Right. She should be fancier and he should be fancier as well. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. poor old... William Wallace ends up in a number of pieces in different places mm -hmm. around the country. A may or may not have a wife that was going, oh, Wallace, that was stupid of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, not his junk, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> what was Wallace's legacy? I mean, did he change things in the fight for Scottish independence? In the film, one of the biggest liberties they take was that they have this um, thing that Robert the Bruce then led the Scots to freedom and it just kind of finishes there and it's like, and they won their freedom and it's kind of like, and then we stole it again very shortly afterwards, but they don't mention that bit. Well, the, the thing of it is, is he is a, certainly a pivotal 
military person. Mm. And what he kind of establishes is that, well, you can fight the English. Right. Like these people are beatable. And it's certainly within the realm of possibility that you can fight back. You don't have to just bend the knee or whatever. And Robert the Bruce does kind of go on to mop things up and these fights continue. And but this is kind of the story. Like if if you're kind of near the border with Scotland, fighting goes back and forth Mm. pretty much throughout the entire kind of like high to late medieval, even earlier than that. They're just always attacking each other. It's rather the done thing up there. And this doesn't really calm down until James the first becomes king of England in the early modern period. So... It is an interesting one because there are these kind of like questions. What does it mean to be Scottish? What does it mean to be English? And it's also a really interesting one because, you know, in the medieval period, a lot of the time people don't think about themselves in these super nationalistic, literally, would they go around going, oh, yeah, I'm Scottish, me, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's there are all these different ways of thinking about things. But I'll tell you one thing that everyone isn't united in is they don't like the King of England telling them what to do. So like that's, that's what it comes down to. Right. Yeah, that's it. Oh, Eleanor, you have been amazing to talk to. You always are. It's so much fun. I'm going to go and re-watch Braveheart now, and I might have to get you back on, and we can say why um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves isn't historically accurate <laughs> next time. I love that film. I love it. Oh, mate. I will let that so many liberties slide with that film. Oh, yes. <laughs> Completely. Not no, a problem. Completely. Alan Rickman all the way. Whatever Alan Rickman wants, okay? Yeah, absolutely. As long as he's having a good time, I don't care. Absolutely. So. Same, same. The Scots came down and raided Sherwood Forest. Fine, as long as Alan sure. says I'm on board with that. <laughs> if people want to know more about you, if they want to hear more of what you do, where can they find you? Over on Gone Medieval every Tuesday. So you can come check me out there. Uh, if you want to hear more about what I think about uh, beauty standards, not just for William Wallace, you can also check out my book, The Once and Future Sex, which is now out in paperback. So budget friendly, baby. I'm around. I'll just, I, I might show up here every five minutes. You don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on again. And I will see you very soon. Thanks, babe. Thank you to everyone for listening. And thanks so much to Kate once again for having me on. This has been Gone Medieval from History Hit. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, follow the podcast, and tell your friends about it. If you fancy suggesting an episode, you can always drop us an email at gonemedieval at historyhit.com. My co-host Matt Lewis will be back again on Friday. And as always... I'll see you again next Tuesday, firmly back in my gone medieval chair. Until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.